Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. I really thought I was going home. I was happy. I was ready to go. There's no question that it's widespread corruption. Um, it's, it's fraud. Um, it's caused an unknown number of wrongful convictions, three of which we know about, Juan Ramos, Wilton Dedge, and William Dillon. And somebody has to do something about this. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, where we are looking at a time when it appeared as if justice didn't matter much, where prosecutions were built and won on phony evidence, and jailhouse snitches would say anything to see their sentences reduced. This is the story of the innocent men who fell victim to the state's practices. In the previous episodes, we briefly introduced you to the three men sent to prison for crimes they did not commit. All spent years locked behind bars before being freed. A fourth, whose case shares many similarities with the others, remains in prison after 33 years, clinging to his hope for justice. We started with the case of 20-year-old Wilton Dedge. It's a sad one. I had only been at Florida today for a couple of years when I first heard the name Wilton Dedge in 2004. For me, this was the case that started cracking open the doors and shining a light on some dark times during the 1980s in the Brevard County criminal justice community. In the last episode, we heard how Wilton was convicted of raping a 17-year-old Canaveral Groves girl, despite what appeared to be the airtight alibi of having six of his co-workers testify that he had been at work in New Smyrna Beach all day. And despite the girl, the victim, initially giving a physical description of her attacker as someone much taller and heavier than Dedge. Later, though, she did ID Dedge in a police lineup as her attacker. So the state zeroed in on Dedge right away and built its case. The case was a little weak. Having an alibi will do that. But they used fraudulent dog handler John Preston to link Dedge to the crime scene. His dog, they said, found Dedge's scent in the girl's house and on her bedsheets. And they misrepresented the possibility that two pubic hairs found at the rape scene belonged to Dedge. What the hair expert testified to was that Dedge could not be excluded as the person from whom the two blonde pubic hairs found on the girl's bed belonged. But Prosecutor Dean Moxley went further when he talked to the jury. He said point blank that the hairs belonged to the rapist. And he told jurors the hairs belonged to Wilton Dedge. The hair analysis, which turned out to be a real bad thing to use to convict somebody, uh, they've already proven that the most they could have done was say that I was a white male with blonde hair. Extent. That was 100,000 people in Bavard County alone. The prosecution also downplayed Dedge's alibi witnesses as long-haired, tattooed bikers, who one even had a record, who were just unreliable. Dedge was convicted, but only two years later won an appeal based on his attorney not being allowed to present testimony to refute some of the dog handler malarkey. He was granted a retrial. 
That's when the state produced Clarence Zaki, a murderer, drug smuggler, and child rapist who would cut so many deals with the state and lead prosecutor Dean Moxley that his sentence went from 180 years to 18 before fate intervened and caught up with him. In what sure sounds like a setup, Zaki was placed alone on a prison van for three hours with Dej. During that ride, Zaki said Dej had confessed to the rape, calling his victim an old hog. He also said that Dej rode his motorcycle 120 miles per hour back and forth from New Smyrna Beach to Brevard so that his absence at work would not be noticed. Now remember, Dej had won an appeal, earning him a retrial. He was on his way back to Brevard County for a bond hearing and hoping that he might be granted bond and go home to await the new trial. That's when he allegedly decided to make this grand confession? Yeah, it sounds a little fishy to me too, but there you go. Zaki's testimony during the second trial would be catastrophic for the now 22-year-old Dej and his hotshot Orlando attorney, Mark Horowitz. Even though Horowitz was able to get Zaki to admit to killing people in an attempt to stay out of jail, while insisting that he would never lie to stay out of jail. I caught up with Horowitz recently, and here's what he had to say. Zaki, I mean, Zaki was Zaki. He was just, you know, I think he was a professional witness. Do I know that they knew that he was lying? I can't tell you that. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you that they knew he was lying. And I can't tell you for sure that it wasn't happenstance that he's on that bus alone. I have my serious doubts that it was happenstance. I think it was planned. But he even said on cross-examination, I think it was at the trial, that he agreed that he had killed people to stay out of jail but wouldn't lie to get out of jail. He was just an evil person, but he was smart. He was real smart. I'm not sure I would agree with Horowitz on his choice of words. Evil? Yes. Shrewd and cunning? Yes. But smart? I mean, here's a guy who was facing drug charges and then killed people to try and evade those charges, charges that were eventually dropped because of a problem with a search warrant. Now, I realize that the state was partnering with others who would say anything in exchange for a reduced sentence. But to partner with Zaki? He was a special breed of lowlife, and they all knew it. I wonder how prosecutors were able to keep a straight face when he testified against Dej, saying under oath that he wasn't promised anything for his testimony, and that he was only doing this because, well, I'll let Wilton Dej tell you what he said. I think I read in your case, Wilton, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, I think I read that uh, he testified saying something like, um, I'm not getting anything out of this, I'm just kind of doing this because I love women and I hate right. people that hurt women. Yeah, I remember that. And at the time, we didn't know about him raping his stepdaughter. Right. But he was saying that that the only reason that he was doing it is because he didn't like anybody that abused women. And that was almost his exact words. So another that, he wouldn't be up here. And you didn't know he was a child rapist. No, but, I did not know. But other people did because... Well, the prosecutor knew. And when we filed a motion of discovery about Clarence Zaki, they never told us about this information, uh, the different rape charges he was facing. We knew nothing about that. Wow. And they said that, uh, well, we didn't press him because, one, we didn't want to disrupt the child, but also Clarence Ackie's never given out, getting out. But yet they're steady helping him to get out. They're steady cutting his time in half and more and giving him time out. I mean, 180 years and you're getting out in 18? Come on now. 
Yeah, that's... And this guy is supposed to be a bad person, and yet you're helping him get out? No. No excuse. Okay. Let's take a short break here to explain this whole child rape thing. When a Brevard County grand jury was figuring out what to charge Zaki with after his drug arrest and the murder of Dickie Hunt, whose brother is prosecutor Michael Hunt, by the way, they heard testimony from an 11-year-old girl, Zaki's adopted daughter, Michelle Martin. She has agreed to let Florida Today use her name. Now, one can only surmise, as Dedge did, that because Zaki was facing so much time in prison, they decided to overlook the other evil deeds he was committing. I remember he used to be the one that came in and woke me up every morning in his little tidy whiteies, and he'd stroke my back. I remember... And how old were you about this time? About six. And he started making me do oral sex. I don't remember a lot of details about what happened because it was an everyday thing. It was every single day he raped me for four or five years. From the time I was six till I was 11. And at 11 it finally stopped because mom shipped us off. And he was getting ready to go down for the car theft, so. And so was it the kind of thing that after a while for a child, it just like becomes normal? It is normal. I thought everybody did that. Daddy's always had their own special little girl. And this is what happened. As much as it hurt, it was something you had to do. And as I didn't want it to happen to my sister, and he was grooming her. He was making her watch. And then um, I showed you an article earlier that we have here that talks about an 11-year-old girl who went before the grand jury. I remember that. That was you. That was me. I was living at Country Acres Group Home, and the director of Country Acres took me to the courthouse to testify in front of the grand jury, and I stood in front of them, and I told them everything he did to me told them about having sex with him, told them about the oral sex, told them about him waking me up, and they didn't care. Now, I guess I don't blame them for not wanting to put an 11-year-old girl on the stand and all that, since they had Zachy nailed on so many other charges. But then, to use him as a star witness and reduce his sentence over and over, and have him testify in a rape case with very weak evidence, and sit there and listen as he says he hated men who abused women, That's just diabolical. I mean, seriously, right? And there is no way that the Dedge prosecutors did not know about it. Because to hear former prosecutor Sam Bardwell tell it, the state prosecutor himself, Doug Cheshire, Dean Moxley's boss, was telling people about the abuse. Now, I need to tell you something that that nobody really knows, is that Clarence Ackie testified in the Wilton Dedge case. And what he said is, I'm a terrible person, but I respect women. There's nothing lower than somebody who disrespects a woman. Now, I had a conversation. I was with Doug Cheshire in the courthouse, probably in Melbourne. He and I were together alone for some reason. He is complaining to me that Clarence Zaki's wife is calling him, saying that Clarence Zaki 
forced her to have, bring men, forced her to have sex with these men, and that he was having sex, or these men were having sex with their daughter or her daughter, who was under 12 at the time, a capital crime. So I knew about Clarence Zaki's purported motive, and I know that Doug Cheshire had to be aware that something is wrong here. I'm fully aware that they knew that Clarence Zaki was as evil as they come, and they knew about the sexual abuse. And you, do you know what Doug Cheshire, when I said, what are you going to do about it, Doug? And he says to me, of course, he was went to, born in Georgia. He says, well, when you get down with the dogs, you're going to get fleas. And that was typical. And when he was asked about Claire Zaki, he says, well, He's a pimple in the buttocks of mankind. So you, you got this idea that you know they knew what they were dealing with, and they were ignoring this, and there was injustice. And it was so rampant. So you're probably asking, what's up with Sam Bardwell and whether he has an axe to grind? I mean, he is refreshingly outspoken, and he has no problem slamming his former employer and peers. Well... I made a public records request for his time as a prosecutor, and he had nothing but glowing reviews and was praised for his performance. So maybe he's just one of those guys who believes in justice. So again, prosecutors were okay with using a scumbag like Clarence Zaki to bolster a weak case against a guy who had six alibis. A guy later proven, yes, proven, innocent. I guess we shouldn't be too surprised because these are the same prosecutors who used John Preston, the dog handler. And yeah, you can say, well, they didn't know any better. But let me tell you this. They were using him after he had been discredited elsewhere in a federal case in Ohio where an innocent man was set free after two years in prison. Yep, Dale Sutton. Sutton was convicted in January 1981 for the armed robbery of a Cleveland post office. John Preston helped seal the deal by saying his dog identified Sutton's scent at the scene of the crime. But a year and a half later, someone else confessed to a string of post office robberies clearing Sutton. He was released from prison in January of 1983. That's before Brevard prosecutors used Preston to help convict Gary Bennett and before they used him a second time against Wilton Dedge, even though he had already been put to the test by Brevard County Judge Gil Goshorn and failed a simple track. So you have the prosecutors determined to win a second conviction against Dedge. And they did. Dedge was found guilty again. Only this time, because Zaki said that Dedge told him he would kill the victim if he was ever released, the judge now sentenced him to life in prison. Life in prison? He went from 30 years to winning an appeal to life in prison. And one of the tragic things about this, one of the many tragic things about this, is that apparently everyone knew what was going on. I mean, whenever I bring it up to someone who was practicing criminal law during that time, they just shake their heads and frown. Here is longtime public defender J.R. Russo, who retired a few years after 33 years in office. Like Bardwell, he was a prosecutor before going to the other side. It was very clear to, to us um, 
what was going on, and, and it was clear to the criminal uh, defense uh, community as well what was going on. And people would discuss this with the various assistant state attorneys, and I knew they brought it to Doug Cheshire's attention, um, that this, this systematic um, bringing in uh, the dog that was fraudulent and, and going to, to the jail to get snitches to testify in cases that were weak um, was just awful. Uh, it, it was used in case after, big case after big case where the evidence was, it was weak. Um, so much so that I believe that, that one of the judges even, um, I think it was Judge Tom Waddell, who was the judge, the second judge in the Juan Ramos trial, brought this to light to the state attorney. I think it was by way of a memo or a letter that he wrote to Doug Cheshire saying that they, um, they, they, did, they, they, they did not look upon this practice favorably. Um, that's a very diplomatic way of saying, quit doing it, in right. my opinion. But, but, they, they, but they went on with it. We'll dive deeper into that topic and the use of jailhouse informants a little bit later. For now, back to Wilton Dedge and a story that gets worse before it gets better. When the lights go out and you're there alone, you, you can't do nothing but think about it. You know, you, you're trying to hold on to hope, but, you know, you, you file a motion, they turn it down. They file them, and then after a while, you're like, well, just tell me when it happens. You know, just tell me yes or no. I don't want to think about it. You know, it's because you got to live inside or out, whether you're innocent or guilty. You can't live outside and be inside. You'll go crazy. I've seen it before. I've seen many guys that couldn't handle it, and they were guilty. <laughs> so, you know, just imagine you shouldn't be there. Yep, he shouldn't have been there. And there was really no hope in sight. At the time, Zaki was counting down to his release date, so he would never come clean. And Dedge had already been lucky enough to win one appeal and a new trial. There was virtually no chance it would happen again. So the years passed. And to pass the time and keep his mind busy, he played sports, mainly softball, and yeah, even basketball, even though he's only five foot five. In a weird twist of fate, one of his teammates for a while in prison was none other than William Dillon, who was serving a life sentence for a murder that he did not commit. Dillon, as we will learn more about in depth later, was victimized by the same prosecutors, the same dog handler, and the same use of jailhouse informants. Here he is, talking about playing ball in prison. At one time in my life, I thought I was really going to be a baseball player. I thought I was good enough to be as good as some of the better ones. But I was just a kid in dreams, in that senses. And when I got sent to prison, they had softball, which was such a relief. I mean, you can play softball and relieve, the whole world goes away. You know, it's a game. And I come out here and I don't really want to play games in the senses. I don't play checkers and I used to, I learned chess. I learned the strategies of chess, but I don't play it anymore. I don't play card games, you know, but I do play softball. Softball for me was like a whole nother world and it was such a, it could be an aggravating world at times, but it was a different world. And it was something you could learn and something you could talk about, but you could get a lot of stress up off of you. You could get a lot of tension up off of you and you could play a game and you could strive to be good at it and you could win. It was a game you could win at. 
I played multiple, multiple games of softball. When I was young in prison, I played every single moment that I could, as well as basketball. I was a very good basketball player, but not any kind of level where these other guys are, but I was just good enough where I could be picked on the teams. But these, these things are just tension. These things take off the edge off of things. They're sports and games you can win. Winning, I've heard, is really important to these guys when they're in there. I had a conversation with Wilton off-camera, and now that I think about it, I wish I had turned it back on. But he was telling me that when he was playing shortstop, he used to hate to take relay throws from his center fielder, William Dillon, because Dillon threw the ball so damned hard, you could feel the air moving as it came near you. He said no one ever wanted to catch throws made by Dillon. That made me laugh. So here is Wilton Dedge in prison, not really ever expecting to be free again, and learning to live inside when a friend in prison hands him an article to read. The topic? DNA. And suddenly, he felt something that had long ago been extinguished, an ember of hope. Well, I learned about DNA back in 86 or 7. A friend showed me an article where they were using it to identify dead bodies but it wasn't in our legal system yet. So that's when I started writing laboratories and that went on from 87 to 93, I believe it was. And that's when I saw the Innocent Project. So just in case you missed that, the poor guy is writing labs, cold, out of the blue, just plain old DNA labs asking if they could help him. Well, they basically said that they hadn't made it that far, that if I get the legal aspect straightened out, that they would do the testing. I finally found one after I don't know how many letters. But they said they would do it if they could get, if I could get the legal part done. I'm not an attorney. <laughs> right. I probably know more than a lot of them, but I'm not an attorney. And that's when the Innocent Project, I saw them, uh, I, think, I, don't remember, I don't remember what show it was, but it was Barry Sheck with somebody that he got out. And I'm thinking, damn, there it is. You know, that's me. And that's when I wrote the Innocent Project. After writing... I don't know how many news stations trying to find an address for them, but we don't have Google in prison, so. <laughs> right, right, wow. And so when you finally heard back from them, was it like a letter or a phone call? Or? Oh, it was a letter. Um, I think I wrote them a two-page two letter giving them the basic outline. They wrote me back, said, unbelievable. It says, send us more information. And that's when it all started, right around 93. And it's your heart had to be. Oh yeah, finally to get somebody to help me. I mean, they basically broke my parents and, you know, put my parents in debt trying to fight this. But even with an organization like the Innocence Project leading his cause, the road to get the DNA tested in this case would not be easy. For some reason, the state's first reaction was to fight. Well, they wouldn't let me test the evidence for one. That took, well, at first they told me they didn't have it. Then we found out they had it. And then it was another couple years before they kept saying, well, you filed your motion too early, believe it or not, the first time, 3.850, you filed too early. Okay? <laughs> Went back, refiled, you filed too late. Or no, I think it was the other way around, I'm sorry. They told me I filed too late the first time, they told me I filed too early the second time because DNA evidence was being introduced into Florida. So believe it or not, they told me too late, then too early. Wow. I kid you not, because I'm like, what? No. Yeah. It did make no sense. I mean. So they tell him his motion claiming new evidence in his case is too late, 
but they also tell him it's too early because there were simply no DNA guidelines yet in the state. Meanwhile, he remains in prison all this time. For three years, the state argues against Dej on procedural grounds, preventing his attorneys from even presenting any DNA results they have. Finally, after years, yes, years of litigating, the Innocence Project had DNA results that show the pubic hairs that the state so adamantly said belonged to the rapist did not belong to Wilton Dedge. Let's pause for a second and say that again. The pubic hairs that the state said belonged to the rapist did not belong to Wilton Dedge. And so you'd think, wow, okay, that means he's proven it. He didn't do it, and they will let him go. Well, not so fast. There's more fighting from the state, more waiting, and a statement that will boggle your mind. Here's Seth Miller from The Innocence Project. And even when he, when Will and Dedge got the DNA test results and petitioned the court to grant him a new trial based on those DNA test results, the prosecution argued that he should not get relief because he didn't get those DNA test results under the new DNA testing regime. So they said that he was, he, he was barred. He should have gotten them earlier. And so even though we had the evidence of innocence, the attorney general in the appellate case, they said to the appellate court, innocence is irrelevant. And of course, the, you know, the appellate court disagreed, thankfully, and Wilton was eventually exonerated. But that's the attitude that folks take. It's the, it's the protect the conviction at all costs, even if we have clear evidence that someone's innocent. Innocence is irrelevant? One of our trusted legal representatives had the audacity to utter those words in court. Innocence is irrelevant. Thankfully, Wilton Dedge and his attorneys got to present their DNA findings to the state. Remember, the pubic hair they insisted belonged to the rapist during the trial was now scientifically proven not to belong to the man who had spent 22 years in prison. And many in attendance, myself included, were expecting him to be released later that day. Wrong. In what was a jaw-dropping moment for me, the state, led by prosecutors Wayne Holmes and Chris White, said the pubic hair found at the scene was inconsequential and that Dedge was indeed the rapist. Inconsequential? I am rarely left speechless. Just ask anyone who knows me. But there I was, unable to even move my jaw. Holmes and White implored Judge Preston Silvernail to order new DNA testing, utilizing newer technology on the semen sample taken from the victim. And their boss, Wolfinger, would later say that he was surprised by the result. But I mean, come on, they had to know otherwise, right? They knew Preston was a liar. They knew Zaki had to have been fed information about the case. They knew the case was, as Sam Bardwell put it, crummy. After all, Dej had six alibi witnesses, and the eyewitness victim had given contradictory information. But still, they wanted more. So a few weeks later, the results from the semen test come back. Wilton Dedge is innocent. The state attorney, Norman Wolfinger, who fought against the dog handling junk as a public defender with J.R. Russo, now took credit for working to make sure the results proved the case one way or the other. Wolfinger, who passed away last year, even said, and I quote, Thank God DNA came up in this case. It bears repeating. Wolfinger, who knew the press and evidence was junk, and who opposed it as a public defender, and whose office tried to prevent the testing of DNA in the Dedge case, and who insisted on more testing when the first DNA results cleared Dedge, then says, 
thank God for DNA, and somehow tries taking credit. I asked longtime public defender J.R. Russo about that. He worked with and was friendly with Wolfinger. With respect to Norm Wolfinger having been at first an assistant state attorney with me in the mid-70s and then being the chief assistant public defender in my office for four years before being elected state attorney and going to that side and being familiar with Juan Ramos' case and being familiar with jailhouse snitches and being familiar with the dog, I was somewhat surprised at Mr. Wolfinger's position and tenacity in which he fought these cases in the future um, on one level. On another level, it was, understa- it was understandable from a prosecutorial mindset. Um, prosecutors get invested in their work like anybody else and they believe that they have a duty to uphold the conviction, which I, that part I understand. Um, what I don't understand is the failure to go back and investigate something that might be questionable. And, and so on one level, um, I understand Mr. Wolfinger's position, and then on another level, I, I was surprised that he didn't go back and, and do what I consider to be a more thorough, um, impartial review of these cases. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. I've never got an apology for any of them. Somebody told me that one of them felt bad, but I haven't, you know, nobody's come to me. Nobody's apologized? No, not to my face. People who know nothing about my case, people that I meet, like when I was traveling with uh, After Innocence, they're like, oh, I am so sorry. Uh, it's not their fault. Right. People from Canada, they're like, oh, my God, that must have been a nightmare. I am so sorry it happened to you. It's not your fault. You know, we know whose fault this is. But those people haven't come to me and apologized. I watched a guy, one of the judges, come out and apologize to one of the people being released. That was awesome. It was up north. Yeah. And, you know, is it so bad to say that you're wrong? I don't think they ever did. And I don't think they ever will. And I don't think they ever will because I don't think they are. (laughs) Right. I I don't think they are sorry. Okay? And I I, I don't understand that. I mean, it's it's hard for me to understand how you can go, you, people can go through life and never just fess up to being wrong. It's not that hard to say. Watch this. I'm sorry <laughs> I was wrong. I really mean it. I'm sorry this happened to you. If there was anything I could do to undo it, I would do it. But you're never going to get that. You're never going to get that from the prosecutor in, in the 18th Judicial Circuit's office. You're not going to get it on William Dedge. You're not going to get it on William Dillon. Or not William, uh, what's his, Wilton. It's Wilton, Wilton yeah. And uh, I'm sure there was never any apology for Juan Ramos. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres. And you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. 
Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.